Welcome to the Italian American Podcast. The first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about and celebrate their brilliant heritage. We're your hosts, Anthony Fasano and Dolores Alfieri Taranto. We're first generation and third generation Italian Americans from the same small village outside of New York City. As writers and speakers, we've both spent years exploring Italian American identity. And through this podcast, we continue this exploration with you. In each episode, we talk to dynamic Italian Americans. Americans, from athletes to authors to entrepreneurs, to find out how their heritage has influenced their success, their values, and their outlook on life. We do it with a lot of heart, a lot of smarts, and a lot of laughs. <laughs> As the saying goes, there are two types of people, those who are Italian and those who wish they were Italian. Whatever camp you're in, grab an espresso and get your hand gestures ready <laughs> for this episode of the Italian American Podcast. This is episode 73, and we're speaking with Val DeFibo, CEO of Deutsch New York. Val was a really fun guest. She is a big-hearted yet down-to-earth woman and a, very successful at that. Oh, yeah, and she definitely displays that Italian-American hustle that we talk about on – it seems that we talk about it on all of our episodes, but – there's no doubt that it was there with Val. We do want to welcome our new listeners to the Italian American Podcast. We have 72 other episodes out there that you can listen to if you really like the first couple that you listen to. Just go to ItalianAmericanExperience.com and click on the podcast, and there's plenty there for you to indulge in, help you kind of remember your childhood memories, your family recipes, and all of the good things that are Italian American. And we also just want to remind people, uh, especially longtime listeners, to not only listen to the podcast, but subscribe to the podcast. This really helps us to get out there in iTunes. Um, I, I don't know exactly how it all works. <laughs> I just know that it does. So if you go to our page in iTunes on your phone, for instance, you just go to the top and there's a big button that says subscribe and you just tap on it and then you'll get all our shows you know, downloaded automatically when they come out. Yeah, and if you like the podcast and you, you know, enjoyed the topics and the conversation, we've created a way that you can actually get involved in that conversation. We created a group online called The New Neighborhood, a place for Italian Americans. It's a private Facebook group that's really kind of like a family at this point. If you want to check it out, you can go to italianneighborhood.com, but we really have a very close-knit community. We share family recipes, family events, you know, things that we're thinking about. In fact, we had one of our members, Mark, the other day was looking for a real Italian restaurant in northern New Jersey. And I happened to know a few and I gave him one and he went with his wife. He had a blast. He posted pictures. So it's really a good way for us to just connect with each other and help each other continue to kind of live out our Italian American values. Yeah, And, you know, Mike actually came with his nieces and marched in the Columbus Day Parade. Oh, really? With wow. us. Yeah. Yeah. So it's also that kind of community, you know, it, it goes offline and becomes a part of your life, which is really, you know, the whole point of it. We do charge a fee. This is a private Facebook group. And I've always been a proponent of, you know, when you have, when you put some money down, you have skin in the game. So we want to make sure that everybody who's in the group is invested in the group and wants to be there. It's a very small fee. I think it comes to like maybe three, $4 a month. And Paisani, we charge because we have to pay to produce this show, and The New Neighborhood has been a great way for us to offer a service to our listeners further than the free podcasts and also keep the podcast going. So check us out at italianneighborhood.com. Yeah, definitely check it out because it is more than just one of these Facebook groups that has thousands of people in them. It's a small group where you're really going to make friendships. So That's right. check it out. All right, Dolores, tell us a little bit more about our guest for today. Okay, Val DeFibo. You never know which is bigger, Val's brain or her heart. With Deutsch for 25 years, she's helped build mega big clients and mom and pop brands while simultaneously being leader, mentor, and culture cultivator to the Deutsch family. Bronx born with the accent to prove it. Val was brought up in a tight-knit family with three sisters and accepts no compromise between winning and having fun doing it. Love that. Precious family time with her husband Dick and son Brian is spent exploring the vast richness of New York's Museum Mile, cooking and squeezing in as much travel as they can. 
All right, now we're going to get into the interview with Val, but before we do that, I want to recognize our sponsor for the episode who's bringing you this interview, Arthur Avenue Food Tours. Believe it or not, the holidays are coming and Little Italy in the Bronx, also simply called Arthur Avenue, will be filled with shoppers who know why it's the absolute best destination outside of Italy for authentic Italian food. If you're in the New York area, consider booking a private tour for your friends, family, or your team at the office with Arthur Avenue Food Tours, also an Italian family business. During a two and a half hour slow graze through the neighborhood, you'll visit over a dozen food shops, butchers, bread bakers, cheesemakers, and pastry shops that have been open for between 50 and 100 years. Sounds like my kind of tour. You can book their new pizza, pasta, and parm tour, a feast of Italian and Italian-American classic dishes. They offer gift certificates that can be redeemed for any of their tours at the convenience of the recipient. You can buy and send them online or by downloading a card that you can wrap and gift in person. Visit ArthurAvenueFoodTours.com for more history, recipes, to book your tour or purchase a gift certificate. And I will say that we co-hosted a tour with them and it was dynamite. I mean, Danielle, who gives the tours, she knows so much about all of the stores because her family had a store on Arthur Avenue and you got to sample all kinds of great stuff. So definitely check out ArthurAvenueFoodTours.com. And Danielle is really similar to us and to many of our listeners. You know, She's really a passionate young Italian-American. So this is a really kind of a mom and pop endeavor. So we definitely encourage all of you to do these tours. She puts a lot of love into them and a lot of passion. And we like both those things. Absolutely. (laughs) You will go on this tour and you will remember it and you will tell your family and friends about it for sure. All right, let's jump into the interview with Val DeFibo. All right, now we're excited to welcome Val DeFibo, CEO of Deutsch New York. Val, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited to be here. Val, thank you so much for making time. We know that you're um, an extremely busy woman, so we really appreciate that. And um, we like to start our shows by, of course, asking our guests to talk about their Italian American upbringing. And if I recall correctly, you're from the Bronx, correct? Yes, I am. I grew up in the Bronx. I'm from the Bronx. And um, when our family came over from Italy, most of them settled in the Bronx. And so uh, we grew up not far from where my great grandmother had a three or four family house, depending on how you count the floors. And all of our family lived in that one house. Each family lived on a different floor. So each of her children lived on a different floor in that one house. And so we grew up not far from there and and visiting there a lot. So because the men in our family died pretty young, our family was a very matriarchal family. So my great-grandmother was kind of the boss of the family, and everyone under her was also a very strong female in that household. So they worked. They, um, my great-grandmother owned a grocery store, and my uh, grandfather worked in that store. Growing up in the Bronx for me, meant a lot of family time. Every Sunday, we went to my grandmother's house, and all of the family did. There were probably 15 or 20 of us every Sunday after church, and we would sit around and eat from, you know, 11.30 in the morning till 5 o'clock at night and do things in between, but mostly eat. (laughs) And (laughs) really, my first, it went from sort of after church pastries from the Italian bakery to right into kind of an hour and a half later, uh, you know, the multi-course meal that my grandmother would make. Um, And we would all sit around and talk or play board games or talk about what we had done in school or whatever. But the family was very, very tight. And so um, I grew up thinking that was normal. Right. And it was really a great way to learn a lot about not only your family, but to feel like you were connected to a bigger a bigger community. 
That's great. I mean, first of all, the three floor setup just sounds very Italian. <laughs> it was so funny because between my grandmother's apartment and my great grandmother's apartment, there was just a staircase and they used to yell up and down the stairs to each <laughs> other. Like it was, they used to just open the door and be like, mom, do you have olive oil or whatever? And yeah. it was literally like, it was so funny. Um, and my grandmother actually had a cantina in her basement and she made wine and what that really meant was she uh, got all my uncles to take shifts pressing the grapes. But <laughs> it was really cool because it, it always smelled like an Italian house, too. You know, with all it, it smelled like wine all year. I think the amazing thing about those of us who are lucky enough to kind of grow up that way, the amazing thing is how you, as you noted, you think it's a normal as in normal, meaning everybody lives that way. And you also have the sense that it'll never change. Correct. And that's, Correct. yeah, and that's kind of something that we have to deal with as we get older. I feel like as Italian Americans in particular. Absolutely. And, you know, I can remember when one of my uncles moved from the Bronx to, so my mother's brother moved from the Bronx with his family to upstate New York. And you would think that he moved to, you know, like Africa or someplace. Right, my right. <laughs> You're breaking my heart. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he got the guilt trip for a long time. Sure. So anyway, but, but you're right. You think it will never change. But at some point, you know, the way jobs are, things happen and people have to find different places to live to, to uh, make a living. Right, exactly. And of course, as an adult, you, you know that what your grandmother knew was that it would be kind of the beginning of the family separating. So that's why she, you know, it, it felt like he was moving so far away, even though it was just upstate. But she understood how, you know, things worked. Yeah. Well, she understood that that meant that they wouldn't always be around for Sunday dinners because it was much further than if he just had to, you know, walk six blocks or whatever. And so, um, yeah, that was the beginning of massive change. And then, of course, as I was the first grandchild, first person in my family to go to college and that was another traumatic experience for our entire family because they were they were like, what do you mean you're going away to college? Why can't you just stay here? You know, why can't you go to NYU? Why can't you? Why do you have to go away? And so it was a big, big change. And of course, since then, all of my cousins and my sisters and lots of us have gone away to college. But you would have thought that I asked to be disowned from the family because I wanted to go to college. But they got used to it. You know, after after the first year and and recognizing, you know, I came home and I still did all the stuff we all did together. And so they did get used to it. But you're right. You know, getting used to that change was, was definitely different for, for um, my grandparents and great-grandparents. Exactly. And honestly, I had the same thing happen too, because I'm the first to graduate from college in my family. And I went real, I went to Arizona. I went really far away from New York. And I have written a memoir and I have a chapter in it where I, I kind of describe me about to leave for school and the Italian women, like the aunts are coming over. And instead, instead of kind of celebrating and being excited, they're like offering my mother consolation and prayer cards and like, it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. So I get that. Yeah. It's exactly the same as that. I'll be honest with you. It really was the same for me, but, but again, they got used to it after a while. So it was, it was all okay. Anyway, <laughs> but you sound like you you grew up in a family where the the women were very independent. So I mean, normally in an interview right now, I would probably ask you know what was it like being so independent in an old fashioned Italian family. But it sounds like maybe you grew up in that environment. So yeah, my maternal grandfather died when he was only forty four years old, and he was slightly older than my grandmother. So that left my grandmother as a widow in her late thirties with three children. The good news was she had this massive support system because she lived in the house, you know, my great-grandmother's house. She lived in that house, and so all the aunts and uncles were around to take care of the kids, but my grandmother had to go to work. So my grandmother worked in a, in a candy factory mostly, and um, she would work all, you know, all hours of the night or all hours of the day, depending on which shift she had. But because she was a working woman in the... 40s. That was very unusual, right? So especially she was the breadwinner, basically. 
And so she also thought she was the boss, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> forever, <laughs> even whenever all the kids got married. But that was a good thing because it, it, from a very young age, I saw uh, very strong women. My mother also uh, worked in the city, actually. She was a, a payroll manager for Pfizer. And so from the time she graduated from high school and started working in the city. And so when I was a young girl, I was brought up with women who worked outside the home. Right. Yeah, it is a little different to have the job I have than the job they had. But it's still, you know, I got the sort of work ethic from the women in our family, for sure. Well, you know, Val, we talk a lot on the show about how there's kind of a misconception probably, probably brewed from stereotypes in the media, movies, mafia movies, that we are actually a very patriarchal culture and that the men dominate. But we talk so much how on the inside, you really know that it's it's the mother and the nonna and the women who are really in charge. And we had um, Dr. Aileen Riotosairi on recently on the show. And she, of course, is the founder of uh, the National Organization for Italian American Women. And she said in, in our conversations, terrific quote, something along the lines of, I think Italian American women have always had an intrinsic sense of their own power. And I wonder if you find that to be true. I, I find it to be true. And I also find that I would say contrary to the stereotype that you see in the movies or that people talk about in at least in my experience, in an Italian household, while the dads are out working, they abdicate all the other power to the women. And so, you know, our grandmothers made decisions about, and my mother, where we were going for holidays, where we would take vacations, when we would eat dinner, whose family we would visit, how we did our work. They were in charge of the, they paid the bills. They were in charge of everything but going to work. That's right. That's and right. they might ask, what would you like to eat for dinner? But the truth is, they made what they wanted to make. So they knew. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> ate it. <laughs> and Anthony, didn't Aileen say something along the lines of that like, her father used to come home from work and just hand her mother his paycheck in a sealed envelope? Like, he didn't even open right. it. Right. Yeah. That's just, you know, he worked and then just gave her the money. Didn't even probably didn't even know what he was bringing home. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> thing happened in, in our house. My, you know, when my dad was in the construction business for a long time and he would just come home and hand it to my mother. And I would watch as a child, my mother would sit at the table with her checkbook. It's probably why I still balance my checkbook to the penny, but she would sit there <laughs> and pay and then when the statements came in, she would make sure that everything sort of um, justified. And and my dad, you know, he completely abdicated that. He didn't want any part of it. He was like, that's your job and you're great at it. That's the other thing. He always would say when we would, you know, he was a softy. My dad was a real softy. So if we wanted to go out somewhere, we'd be like, dad, can we go to this party? He learned not to say yes right away because my mother would kill him. But, but <laughs> he... <laughs> He would start to say yes, and then he would say, you better ask your mother. So he knew knew that she was the one making the decisions. So, yeah, for me, being strong is not unusual. The unusual thing is getting the reaction you get in the workforce when you are the way your parents and grandparents were in your home environment. Say, you know, in at least in our household, and I don't know if it's true for all, but most of the Italians I know are very verbal and they're very um, they're very emotional, and so they say what's on their minds, and they sometimes say it with passion, they sometimes say it with flowery language, but they're very deliberate in in expressing themselves, and so coming into the workforce and and doing that. And being met with a lot of like, whoa, that's not the way we, that's not PC. That's not the way we do it here. It has, was difficult in the beginning, especially as a woman. I'm not sure if it, it would be the same for a man, but especially for a woman in, in the early 80s. Yeah, because we have an inclination to just be straightforward. Exactly. And, and kind, yeah, and articulate and also express. Like if you're feeling something, you express it and then you move on. I mean, that's why we would like fight in my house and then everyone's screaming and then five minutes later we're all like around the dinner table eating and laughing just like get it off your chest (laughs) just because you had a point of view didn't mean you were personally against someone 
you could say you look fat in that dress and they would take it off and go, oh, you'd probably be. No, but really, I, you know, I have. Three... I know. That's why I'm laughing. That's a knowing laughter. Yes. Exactly. I had three oh, sisters. Oh, so good. And, and good. we, you know, we would like to say that we were each other's best girlfriends because we were honest with each other. Like we would put something on, one of us would put something on, the other one would be like, that doesn't look good on you. Take it off. Put that other right. thing on. You'll look better. <laughs> and, it, and my grandmother was like that too. I'll tell you a funny story. We went bridesmaid shopping for my sister's wedding. And my grandmother was in a wheelchair at that point, And we took her to all these stores and she was, she sat in the wheelchair outside the dressing room and each of all four of us were trying on dresses. And as we would come out, she would give us the look of death when it looked ugly. She'd be like, take that <laughs> off. Or you can't wear that to church. Get that off. That color is horrible. And we were hysterical laughing because we, it was it's like a so parade. <laughs> it was a, it was really yeah, fun. you didn't take it personally. You're just like, all right, well, I'm not taking this dress home. That's exactly. it. I have a similar story. So growing up in high school, I had, you know, what my what we would call like Medigan friends, right? My American friends, quote unquote. Right. And they would be like, they would, they would come over. And if my mom hadn't seen them in a long time, especially when we went away to college, I remember this because we would be gone, you know, you'd be gone for like months at a time. Then you'd come home for a break and they would come over and they learned, they'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to come over to your house tonight. Uh, your mom's going to tell me whether or not I got fat. I, and like, they would look forward <laughs> to the minute they walked through the door. My mom would be like, Oh, Joanna, hi, you got fat or. <laughs> Oh, Joanna, you look good. You lost weight. And they would love it because they, they knew that if she said it, it was true either way. <laughs> right. It probably was. I know. Well, but Italians yeah. had a distorted view, at least in my, again, in my experience, Italians had a distorted view. My family never stopped telling me that I don't eat. They were like, you don't eat. You know, you don't look like you ate. What's the matter? You have no money? I was like, I have money and I do eat. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, those are the best stories. One time in, uh, I think, junior high, my mother took me to the doctor because she was convinced I wasn't eating. Right. I was like, I'm eating. I promise you. I'm just like a small kid, but I'm eating. Like, that's how far it went. Like, she's not eating. And the doctor was like, oh, Madonna, <laughs> another Italian mother. <laughs> that's exactly right. So, Val, you mentioned a few minutes ago there kind of the idea of breaking into the, the workforce. So let's jump into that. Obviously, now, you're the CEO of Deutsche New York, high-level position, but for sure, you obviously worked your way up there. So take us to the start of your career. How'd you get started? You know, I, I went away to college and I went to Massachusetts. I went to Williams College, which was, again, very crazy for my family, for me to be in Massachusetts at this place where there were cows and it wasn't a city and it was bizarre for them. And so when I was there, I was studying uh, psychology and art history and I was I took a, a few courses that um, got me interested in how you process information to change your mind about something. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to work in a field where your job is to communicate facts and information to people to help them make decisions? And so while I was in college, there were all these courses about how those uh, stimuli information impact your brain activity and and then also your behavior and that's what I was interested in so that's what got me interested in advertising and I started I actually at first couldn't get a job um, because my resume said I was from the Bronx every time I interviewed for a position in an advertising agency they offered me many positions as an administrative assistant sort of typing for executives but I didn't know how to type because that's not what I studied so wow I, yeah, I couldn't take those jobs because I really, I didn't know how to type. And so I knew I would, that wouldn't be a good fit for me. Plus, I also knew if I got typecast in a job like that, it would be so hard for me to get out. So I waited probably. Smart. Yeah, horrible. Um, one, one hiring manager actually told me to take my address off my resume. He said, just take wow. that. I know. Interesting, right? Did you? But you didn't. No, I didn't. Or you did. No, I did not. I did not take it off. Yeah. I mean, people kind of, I feel like underestimate this, that this actually happened to Italian Americans and, you know, I mean, maybe other groups from the Bronx as well, but we, we really do this show in part to kind of teach that history that, you know, that it was really hard for 
someone like you with, you know, an Italian American name, a woman from the Bronx to be taken seriously. Absolutely. And, and, and now when I think about that and I think about the privilege I have of actually having the skin color I have, I can just imagine how hard it is for people who are of a multicultural background and the challenges they face even today, uh, you know, because I lived through that and it wasn't nearly as probably pronounced, but I can tell you it was very difficult to get a job because I was definitely stereotyped. So the, re- the way I got a job is because my younger sister, who was is seven years younger than I am, was in high school with one of her friends and her, the friend's sister worked in an advertising agency in the city. She introduced me to her, they had an opening and that woman hired me. And so that's how to do a job on Nabisco brands working in the media department to spend the budget for milk bone doll biscuits on television and in newspapers and things like that. So that was my first job. I got my job through my younger sister, I like to say. And she That's sweet. Family family stuff. We yeah. like that. Family stuff. <laughs> that got me my first job. And then, you know, again, as a woman working in in a predominantly male industry, even in the 80s, had to work super hard. We worked very long hours. And I always loved public speaking. I think because when I was a child, I um, used to uh, speak at church. I used to I used to do all the readings and be the lectern at, at church. They always used to say, oh, Val, will you do it? And my dad was like, just do it. It's not that hard. And so once I started that, <laughs> I I got comfortable speaking in public. And so whenever there was a presentation to give at work, even though I was the youngest person on the team, I was so, I wouldn't get nervous. So they would just say, well, someone else did the work, but you get up and present it. Well, then I started to, you know, as I got more senior and more senior, I started to do more of the work. But I always, so for me, I was very lucky because I had a a very public persona and I had a lot of exposure to the management of the agencies that I worked in because I would speak in in public and answer questions. And so I was lucky because I got, um, I was promoted there and then I went to another agency and I worked on Procter & Gamble. That was fantastic. It was great training. Again, I I got exposure to very senior people. And then I came, uh, probably eight years into my career, I came to Deutsch, which was a very small agency at the time started by Donnie Deutsch. I'm sure people know who he is. You see him on sure. TV on morning show. Yeah. So I came here and, and partially what I loved about the agency was the cultural fit. Apart from the fact that they were very smart people, what I loved about Donnie was when I interviewed with him, I was really able to express myself in a way that I hadn't in previous jobs. So in other words, he asked me a question. He said something like, so if I don't hire you, what will you do? And I said, well, I'm not sure you really care, but I will either stay at my current job or if I lost that job, I would find a way to make money because I'm not going to sit around and wait for someone to um, validate me. I have a lot of things I want to do, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that happen, whether I work here or somewhere else. And he said, you're hired. Nice. Wow. So. I knew from that moment that I could be myself with him, that I could speak my mind, and that if he didn't agree, he would say, hey, I don't agree with that. But it it really was a great way to enter into a company and be able to explore, be curious, and test my own boundaries. And so I was able to, you know, really accelerate my position in the company because I was able to hire great people, work with great clients, and make the agency money. Of course, that's what my job was. So um, we did great work. And you felt like you could you could be yourself in every aspect. So I'm I'm asking, meaning you you said you started out and you know a hiring manager told you to take the Bronx off your resume. But now when you're at this stage, does it change for you? I mean, even at the stage you just described, not necessarily where you are right now. We'll get there, but. You know, Donnie was from Queens, and so he. I think he had a positive predisposition to people in the Bronx. And from, you know, if you think about the entertainment industry, right, and you look at a lot of the people who are comedians or famous directors or whatever, a lot of them come from the Bronx. And so there actually is a, a history of 
very talented, smart people in the entertainment business. So, you know, Donnie would say stuff about like Gary Marshall or whatever, you know, so Donnie knew all those people. His perception of Bronx wasn't like working girl. It was talented people who made their way by working hard, who came from the Bronx. And so right. That's great. I like to say Italians and Jewish people are very much alike. And so Donnie obviously was Jewish. We had a lot of things in common. So, uh, and I mean family values in common, the, the closeness that, um, that we all share. And, the, and I think the affinity for having family time around food is also something that, that we shared. So it was easy to talk about our family lives together in addition to, um, you know, what we were doing at work. Hey, Val, I, I read some some interviews of, uh, with you and different news outlets and stuff, and it seems like right along the lines of what you just said, that a big part of kind of your success and the success of your company is, you know, these honest, having these honest conversations, giving people feedback, you know, good or bad, um, just for the good of the company, for the good of the client and everything, just kind of keeping it real. Do you, do you feel that your Italian upbringing and kind of the, the open conversations we talked about before has kind of helped you to do that? Because it's not something I think everybody can do that easily. Absolutely. My Italian upbringing and the way that my family um, communicated has helped me at Deutsch. I'm not sure it's always helped me in the industry, but at Deutsch, it's been very, very um, useful. And there also, you know, there are some clients along the way who have said they wanted me to work with them in particular. So they would pick me out after meeting me a couple of times and say, I want to work with her because she's going to tell me the truth about my business. And so there are people who really appreciate that candor, that honesty, that give and take, that sort of someone who listens to them and then and enters into a dialogue with, with, real, um, with realness <laughs> Um, and then there are some people who don't. They want to be told that they're right about everything that they're doing, and I don't fall in that bucket. Right. The reason I ask, too, is because I think that that's one of the things that's missing in a lot of companies today that really end up not being successful because they're kind of like just doing things to do things, and no one really kind of cuts people off and says, we got to get back on track because this isn't the right thing to do. And so I think that that's – a great thing. And I, it definitely sounds to me like your Italian upbringing really helped you with that, which is ultimately like you and the company I think are benefiting from, which is great. Well, and, and I agree. And I would also say that that trait is not only uh, available to Italians. And so being able to find people from all different cultures and ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds who have the courage to, have a point of view and speak about it is has been what's really propelled my growth here is being able to look and and say that person will tell so and so the way it is we're not doing that newspaper coverage you know Vonda who's sitting right here if someone has a bad PR idea she'll say that's a really bad idea and here are the four reasons it's a bad idea and that to me is worth a million dollars versus letting me do something in PR that's really stupid just because I'm the boss. You know what I mean? So right. Yeah. That must make such a different culture, such a different work environment when um, everybody who's around you knows that you you approach the work that way. It is. And I, I, this is a, just a dovetail off of what you're saying. I know it's, it's not exactly what you're pointing to, but I like to talk a lot about how your heritage is is like a superpower and it's, you know, I'm partial to being to my Italian American heritage. And of course on this show, that's how we talk about it. But I, I do think it can apply to anybody who has a, a way to access their heritage and the things that are essential about it. And I find, I don't know if I'd be interested to hear if this has ever happened to you, but I find myself in, you know, obviously at work, very high pressure situations. I'm around a lot of people who, you know, don't have a lot of patience and just want answers. And it's, it's a lot, right? Everyone's in like a pressure cooker. And oftentimes for me to find my self again and my center and to kind of be able to have full self possession, I think about my heritage. I think about 
And what does that mean? I think about who I am. I remember like the people who love me and where I come from and what my parents went through. I mean, I, I run through it really quickly. But once I do that, I feel so strong because and I can then I can voice what I need to voice. If it's not taken well, it's not taken well. If it is, it is. But I I always maintain my self-worth and self-possession from that place. Yeah, I, that's really well said. I think that um, I think that that's a, almost a, an elevated way of thinking. I'm not sure most people get there. I mean, for me, I would say because my dad had four daughters and no sons, um, he was very strong with us about knowing who we are and feeling like we had the right to speak up or um, at least have a point of view. And that you're not always right, but you'll never know if you are or you aren't right if you don't let people know what you're thinking. And so that's right. Yep. I I always um, think of that when I, I think, should I be quiet right now or should I say what I'm thinking? And I nine times out of 10, I go with, I should say what I'm thinking. And that does come from my heritage and my background. You know, it's, it's funny. I just, in the last, I guess, year, really, I went to Ancestry.com and I started to look at the manifest from the ships that my grandparents came in on and how they wrote um, my aunts and uncles' names, my great aunts and uncles' names and things like that. And I became so fascinated with sort of the family tree and when I, you know, when I was a child and much younger, I never really thought about how hard my grandparents and great-grandparents had to work to get here and how, how their lives were. I mean, they worked their butts off here manually, mostly, uh, because that's what Italians could do, right, and, and in the 40s. And so I think um, when I think about that, I feel not only lucky, but I feel... Um, I feel a certain obligation or, um, I guess, motivation, inspiration to look back and help other people. And some of them are Italians, which uh, the work with the Italian Welfare League, I think, is a little bit of that. But other people, too, that struggle and work hard. Mm, that's Absolutely. great. Absolutely. I found one of the most surprisingly uh, fulfilling and exciting parts of my job is the fact that I get to help other people. I I didn't kind of maybe naively expect that, but being in the position I'm in, I'm able to connect people and, you know, put a good word in or whatever it is. And I love that. I find that really rewarding. Well, you know, uh, now Matt, I wanted to ask you a question, but I feel like I feel that way too. And I wonder if it's because the only way we were able to be successful is finding the few people who did that for us and, and having such gratitude for that, that you feel like you want to pay it forward because it's exactly without, right. Right. Without someone connecting those dots for us, it was really easy for people to turn me down or ask me to be a secretary. Um, right. But, but the ones actually put two pieces of, things together or decided to be a champion or just said, I see the merit in this. Those are the people that made it possible for us. And I feel like we, you know, I, I especially feel like I need to do that, take on that role. That's the exact, you worded it perfectly. That's exactly how I feel. There was people who just did that for me. And so now it's, it's so nice to be in a position finally, where I can do that for other people after you, you know, you spend all those years needing, I mean, of course you still need people, but you know, it's different. You're just, you're just kind of needing. And then when you finally get to a level where you can reciprocate that it's, you should, I feel, and, and it feels wonderful. You know, it's so true. The other thing about need is right. When you're young and you're starting out and you're trying to build your career, you need people to connect you. You need people to champion you. You need people to, to see you, right, and to and to respect seeing what you can bring to the table. And then as you start to get more successful, more senior in your business, and you have a family, you need other people. So you need people to help you get your stuff done. You need your, your husband or your wife to help you figure out how you're going to manage the life you've created for yourself and your family, right? And so it's an interesting need shift over the years. And 
And I think being thankful and grateful to all the people that you've needed along the way is really important because, you know, there's someone that I call all the time when I need a ride somewhere. Um, and he always shows up for me. And you know what? That takes a, a massive stress off my head when I have to be at a speech or an event or whatever. I know I can count on him to take me where I need to go. That's, that's amazing, right, to have that those people in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My husband does that for me a lot. And it's, it takes like so much pressure off of me running around all over the place. And especially if you're going somewhere and you're about to speak and, you know, and then you're like a woman and you're trying to get yourself together. It's a, it's a huge help. Yeah. It goes a long way. Val, you, uh, you obviously are a pretty high energy person here and you have a position as the CEO of Deutsche New York that I'm sure is a high energy, you know, a lot of stuff going on and you're also happy you're in New York. So it's just, everything is so fast paced. I would assume that that's kind of what really makes you good at what you do and you thrive in that position because all those things kind of put together. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, New York, I don't, I grew up in New York and so when, you know, when I went away to school, I couldn't understand why people didn't move the way we moved here, you know, <laughs> why it took so long to check out at the grocery or whatever. So for me, this pace is very comfortable, but it is, this is a really interesting uh, way to manage your life, to be sort of scheduled to do something. And then all of a sudden, like, for example, if you guys were busy today, then probably I would have to change my whole schedule for not only the day, but also for when you are available. And that's, a, that is, as you guys, you probably do the same thing. It's like right. you plan the whole day out. And then what, what's that expression? Like you're busy making plans and God laughs. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, you make all these plans. You got everything sorted out. Everything's going to work out fine. The timing's great. And then boom, the train's late. Or something, you know, it's like, okay, you have to just roll with it or you'll drive yourself crazy. I mean, you'll, just, you'll, you'll be so stressed all the time and frustrated. Sometimes you just got to say, all right, that's how it goes. Right. So Val, we, we know, speaking of schedules that you're extremely busy. So we want, we, you know, we do want to wrap up and not keep you too long. And, and as we do that, I have to admit that I, of course, spoke to Vonda, who's in the room with you there, um, your executive vice president and a wonderful woman. And we had a great conversation and she kind of let out of the bag that the work environment there she feels is probably very influenced by your upbringing in the sense that it's a real family environment and that you're very understanding that people are close to their families and that, you know, they have lives outside of work. So I, first of all, think that that's amazing and something that I, you know, strive to do in my own way. I think we should bring our values into the workplace, especially as Italian American women. And I wonder if you could speak a little about how you do that. And, you know, if you do it consciously or it's just natural. Well, it's very, it's very natural for me to bring who I am to work. And so I think that's really the underpinning of what uh, guides the way I approach work and the people at work. And Part of it is what what you and Anthony were asking me before about people being straightforward. So I encourage people, if they have to take their children to the doctor or have to go to a concert at school or their kids are playing soccer or their husband has a speech he's giving, whatever it is, um, their mom is sick, they have to take care of their dad, whatever those things are, um, then those those things are important. And I don't want people to lie when they come to work and say, I'm a doctor's appointment. I mean, that's cool too. But if you're taking care of your sick father or you're taking care of your sick mother or you have a dog and your dog uh, threw up on the carpet this morning, I'd rather know that you need to work from home today because you're stressed out that your dog is sick and you're not quite sure what's right. Because if, if things are working the way they should be working here, you are coming to work every day. You're giving me your all. You are completely committed to your team, and your team is going to have your back when you need time to regroup and get something that's important to you back straightened out. So even when people are moving, so we have a lot of young single people here that they move to different apartments every year or whatever because they have different roommates or they can't afford the one they're in, whatever it is. 
they need a moving day. You can't move on the weekends in New York, right? So, yeah. Uh, so they need a moving day. I'd rather them tell me I need a moving day, and that's great. And if I need you, I'm going to find you. If something's that urgent, I know where to find you. But the truth is, respecting what people think is important to them goes a very long way. Uh, I think it inspires loyalty, and it inspires people to be more um, empathetic to others when they have something they need to do, or when they're sick, or, or whatever. And so that does come naturally to me, um, and I do think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the only person who thinks this, but in our family, it was always family first. And so... I think family first is a good rule because as long as you don't stay home every single day and you know your job's important, family first is an okay rule with me. Mm, that's great. I love it. I mean, what a great work environment. <laughs> I think Vonda said she's been there like 17 years. So, I mean, it's a testament to that loyalty. Yeah. There are a lot absolutely. of people who have not only been here a long time, but we have people we call boomerangs who they are here for a while, they go and do something else or try to work at a different company or whatever, and then they call and ask if they can come back here. And I, you know, yeah, it's great because people recognize this is a great environment, but, you know, obviously we scrutinize whether or not they did a good job while they were here. Most people do. But for the most part, if someone wants to come back and bring what they've learned from someplace else, we're happy to take them back. It's a great place to work. It's a fun It's a fun place to work. It's a caring place to work. But there's also, in my background, and I think at the underneath this company is a hard work ethic. Like I believe in working hard. I believe in getting my hands dirty. I wouldn't ask anybody to fix the copier if I didn't know how to do it myself. I cleaned out the diffusers in the bathroom this morning because they looked just. (laughs) And I don't know. And you know what? I but people work hard. People do work hard. so, um, and I think that's important for the company too. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's really a perfect way for us to kind of wrap this up with this idea of family first, because it is something that we talk about on the podcast a lot. You know, obviously it's something central to a lot of Italian American families and other families and other cultures as well, but it's always something that Dolores and I try really, really hard. So Val, before we let you go here, is there any last things you'd like to say to our listeners, which are a lot of Italian Americans who are very passionate about their heritage? So what I actually, one thing, um, my mother grew up, my mother was born in the United States and had never been to Italy. And so when I, when I got old enough to be able to afford to take her, I took, and that's also true of my father. I took both my mother and my father and all of my siblings and their kids to multiple trips to Italy to see different parts of Italy. And so I think connecting Italian-Americans back to their roots, because sometimes, you know, when our family came here, they tried to assimilate. So they didn't, my grandmother only cursed in Italian. She didn't really speak Italian. She, she would say they're not <laughs> going to respect you if you only speak Italian or you have an Italian accent. So... We all grew up speaking English and, um, and, and hearing stories about Italy, but we never went there as children. And, and I'm, I feel lucky and thankful that not only have I been able to bring my mother back to Italy to see just how, where her roots, you know, you, she can feel it. She loves to go there, but also to be able to bring my son, who feels such a deep connection, so much more than I did when I was a child, because he's... He's been able to actually feel the culture in the food, in the people, in um, the architecture. And it's, it's a real gift to be able to do that. And you can do it inexpensively or you can do it expensively. But I would say for all cultures, uh, going back to your roots to experience what our grandparents and great-grandparents did is, is really invaluable. So that's how I like it. That's yeah, that's great. And that's we agree. We agree 100 mm-hmm. percent. I did that with my kids. We spent six weeks in Italy and I feel like now they really understand where they came from. And it makes all the difference in a lot of our conversations and a lot of things we do here. So that's a great, you know, a great message to leave here. So Val DeFibo, CEO of Deutsche New York, thank you so much for spending some time with us here in the Italian American podcast. We know how busy you are, but you've obviously given our listeners quite a few things to think about in terms of their heritage and their culture, and we're grateful for that. 
Thank you, Anthony and Dolores. It's been my pleasure talking to you and talking to both of you about being an Italian-American. Thanks again for listening and being a supporter of the podcast. We really do appreciate it. And to that end, we're thrilled that we're almost at 90 iTunes reviews, which is absolutely amazing. And Dolores is going to read one here in a moment. But I do just want to say many of you have contacted us, some of you through the reviews, saying that you can't find our group, The New Neighborhood. Just go to italianneighborhood.com. There's a short video with Dolores and I. There's a link where you can sign up and then you'll be redirected to the private Facebook group and you'll receive an email welcoming you into the group. So it's pretty simple. Just go to italianneighborhood.com. Dolores, why don't you read a review as you take us out? I love reading these reviews, Anthony. I love them. We're getting more and more of them. And Paisani, we really appreciate it. Again, it helps to get the show out there and it helps to uh, show people who maybe stumble across it that it's a quality show. So we're going to keep reading these. So if I don't read yours, you know, today, we'll we'll read it next time to just keep them coming. This one is from D'Ambrosi62, a beautiful five-star reviews. So much fun, just like Sunday dinners. Anthony and Dolores, I want to thank you for creating such a venue where it feels like it's a Sunday dinner at home with my parents, aunts and uncles, and some cousins thrown in the mix. That, by the way, makes us feel great. <laughs> at times at times hilarious and at other times poignant. Today I started to sing the opening song as always when I listen and it changed. I really like the new intro. It's like a parent who is proud of their kids. My smile broadened and of course commenting out loud in my car how cool the new sound was. Nice job. Thank nice. you. That's great to hear. I have to say the Italian American Power Hour with John Viola and Pat O'Boyle. You're all welcome to my house for dinner and continue to have these conversations. It is so much like home. Thanks for creating this. It is so needed in our community. Oh, love that. That is, first of all, <laughs> I didn't realize that we'd be able to use this podcast to get free dinners. At people's yeah. houses. So that's a huge plus for me. <laughs> yeah, be careful. You might just show up. Yeah. <laughs> Inviting me to dinner is risky. That's right. Yeah, and he eats a lot, as we talk about in this show. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't know where anyway, you put it. I always it, say that. <laughs> it was a beautiful review. I mean, really, they're all beautiful in their own ways, everyone giving their own perspective of the show. Dolores and I love that. And, you know, we just really appreciate it. We're going to keep coming. And we, we do really appreciate having John and Pat and Rosella. It kind of brings something different to the show um, and, you know, different perspectives and also, you know, some different topics. So we, we, we've, been, we've been enjoying it. Just keep the reviews coming and we'll read them. And um, we're listening and we're going to, you know, keep doing the show and hopefully making it better and getting different topics and, and different guests. So Dolores, take us out before we talk forever here like Italians. <laughs> So, Amici, we are on social media. We are on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. All you have to do is go to those platforms and search Italian American Podcasts. Arrivederci. Arrivederci.